You're listening to The Food Talk Show. Hi there, my name is Sue Nelson and for the next half hour or so we're going to be talking all things food and drink. And uh, we're just leading up to Christmas. We've got a Christmas tree in the studio and I hope you're looking forward to a lovely Christmas surrounded by friends and family. I'm deliberately on my own today without the otherworldly interruptions of Ollie Lloyd, founder of Great British Chefs, or the more relevant contributions of Holly Shackleton, who's editor of Speciality Food magazine. Why am I on my, my own? Well, it's because this is an extra special one-off show and uh, today I'm joined by an exceptional guest and I just wanted her all to myself. It's the um, the wonderful Sheila Dillon from Radio 4's The Food Programme, a legend. Welcome. <laughs> a legend? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think that's footballers and such like. Possibly. Yeah. Um, in many respects, I think you're a big unsung heroine of the food sector to me. Um, and I think we have so much to talk about. Um, and... Well, I hope so. I mean, I know from, you know, knowing you way back when at Northwest fine foods that we share a lot of the same interests. We do indeed. And and um, I don't th- I don't think a lot of people you know know that you were actually born in Lancashire in Horton. Horton, yes. Where there's Horton Tower. Horton Tower. So what we thought in honour of Horton, which is between Black It's on the main road between Black Preston. no Blackburn Blackburn and, and, Preston. and Preston, yeah. We bought look, can you see in the studio we bought you loads and loads of different um, I know, uh, Lancashire I was, I was foodie really stuff. <laughs> In fact, I've already been eating some of the chorley yeah, so, cake. So basically, we, we got some chorley cake, which is a traditional Lancashire cake. Yeah, why don't cake. people eat more? I mean, Eccles cakes have made it south, but... Chorley cakes are much nicer, in my personal yeah, opinion. Might, that's my opinion, too. Now, what we were going to do is we were going to, you know, open a chorley cakes packet and, and eat one now, but you seem to have eaten yours already and we haven't even started. <laughs> I'm sorry to say that I have, yes, because your I had this, this was... really good uh, uh, cappuccino. Yes. No, anyway, yes, but there's plenty else, isn't there? There is there's, plenty else. So, there's parking. Yeah, we thought you might want to take that Sound effects. as Sound a little effects. present. Uh, do you like a bit of parking? Yeah, I love parking. So, so what's in parking? Well, it's usually oatmeal, um, treacle, That's eggs... Fine. It's just a lovely sort of... Yeah, it's lovely. I mean, it's it's bonfire night food, really, isn't it? It's, yeah. It's, it's autumn, bit, winter food. It's a bit late for that, but we thought you might like to yeah, do that it's home. Bit, it's, it's not... I never think of it as Christmas, but why not? Yeah, why not? But my favourite cheese... One of my favourite cheeses, of course, is Mrs Kirkham's Lancashire. Oh, yes. We have got the most beautiful slab of yeah, that you for do. you uh, to oh. taste. Now, uh, you stole the trolley cake earlier, without asking, may I say. Uh, <laughs> but if you'll notice the uh, cheese, there's a little chunk yeah. taken out of the cheese because when I when I opened the packet, I couldn't resist it and I had okay. to take a little bit out. So, so, so there we go. Right. Um, and uh, Mrs Kirkham's up in Lancashire been making this cheese, the whole family been making this cheese for a very long time, haven't they? Uh, yes, and her mother made it before her. Mm. I mean, it's Graham Kirkham now, it her is. son, it who is. went into the motor trade and was at the time he was a bit interested in cheese to begin with. <laughs> but now he is. But now he is a great cheesemaker. And um, is he the one that wears that very colourful waistcoat? Have I got no. that right? No, no that's that? his friend, Peter Gott. Oh, that's Peter Gott. Oh, yeah. Yes, right. So he's, wild boar farmer. He's the wild boar man. But they are mates, yeah. Yeah. Um, it is a spectacular cheese, isn't it? Mm. You're munching your yes, way it through is. it. It um, really got, is. And um, most people know Lancashire cheese from, you know, the supermarket version. I don't want to malign supermarkets, but we malign the Lancashire supermarkets. cheese does not. You cannot right. do that in a big dairy. We malign supermarkets on this programme all day long. Yeah. We're quite happy with that. Right, well. um, only because it's difficult for them to keep it in a, in a really good condition. Well. And keeping cheese is, is important. Yeah. You but, must have got this from somewhere like Neil's Yard. Or, mm. oh, and and um, isn't it good? Great <laughs> long aftertaste. Okay, and, and I'm again, eating the last bit of my chorley cake with, with a piece of cheese. Mm. And the great thing about Lancashire cheese, it is the best uh, melting cheese. 
toasted cheese, without a doubt, mm. don't you think? So if you are making a spectacular cheese on toast, you should be using Lancashire cheese. You should. Um, it's just lovely. Mm, it is gorgeous, isn't it? Um, I've got some Uncle Joe's mint balls for you to clear I your mouth yeah. afterwards. <laughs> Let's I, leave that for a bit later. We'll leave yeah. that for a bit later. What I'm really disappointed with, with Uncle Joe's mint balls, now, I think most people down south will have never heard of Uncle Joe's mint balls, probably. Mm. But if you're up in the Wigan area, that they're everywhere, obviously. Um, do you know, I was really disappointed because I opened this tin, old-fashioned tin. and they're Beautiful all, tin. And they're, they're all in plastic wrap. They're all in individual they're plastic they're... wrappers. They never used to be. No, I'm disappointed by that. Hell in a handcart, right? Yeah, that's not a good idea, is it? So no. I'm not disappointed in that. Um, but anyway. And then there's um, something called Lancashire sauce, which I have to confess, I have never, ever heard of. Have you? Nor me. No. I think that... Um, I did taste it earlier. Is it all right? No. <laughs> it's awful. Oh, I don't even know what it's for. Um, I'll have to have a look at that later. Anyway, while we're munching our way through some stuff, um, I just wanted to give it a little bit of background um, on you, Sheila, really. Uh, you did an English degree at Leicester University. I did. You did? And uh, you wrote for the university newspaper. I did. Why did you Why did you feel obliged, you know, straight away as a student to, to actually start writing in the newspaper? Oh, I, was, been oh, I, was, I was mad keen on... I mean, I loved writing at school. I mean, I wrote short stories and... I was, I don't know, and I, I also, I ended up in this college living for my first year in college um, that was aping a, a sort of Oxbridge college, mm. and it really irritated me. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they would say grace in Latin. I mean, these things would not bother me now, but they, when I was 18, they really... Why did that upset you? Because you're from a sort of working class background think, and you felt I it was a bit so. elitist? I just, the food was crap, you know, but we were supposed to sit down in this formal way and eat this rubbish. A bit like and, Harry Potter in the yeah, big halls. Yeah, I suppose of, so. Hmm. I just, and so I wrote this front page story attacking this. <laughs> and then I was called up to see the, I forgot what she was called, poor woman, um, the mistress of the college um, for writing this story about college hall. So slightly rebellious then, I'm guessing. I hope so. <laughs> and and then from there, I'm not sure if this is true, you went to, uh, to spend a year in Finland. Yeah, my first job was with the oh, British Council. freezing. Why did you go there? I mean, I, I wanted Helsinki. to get out of Britain. I mean, you know, it's, it was the working class thing. Because, you know, then, well, you, you sure you remember this. I mean, I don't know enough about your background, but, you know, you were so easily... Pigeonholed. Oh, yeah, definitely. No. Okay, working class girl went to a red brick university. I'd had enough of it, and um, I just wanted to get out. And this, I saw this job advertised, and and I had the most wonderful year. And I, I in fact, it was a really important year. I, I realised into understanding something about food because I'd grown up in Lancashire eating fantastically good food you know just but not in any self-conscious way I mean it just was the way we ate you know it was local it was all the things that we now say are cooked but it just scratch. was yeah cooked from scratch my mother worked full-time but we still had cooked from scratch meals and you know and, and and you know we picked things and you know we went to the we went when the strawberry grower up on on um, in the village you know had strawberries we all you know you know, we ate seasonally because that's the way it was. Well, you couldn't get anything out of season anyway. No, exactly. Mm. And, well, you, you know, you could. The vegetable van came around on Thursdays and, you know, yeah. and he would have pomegranates and, and coconuts and chestnuts, you know, depending on this, you know, what was what was special. But but when I got to Finland, they ate like that too, but they took tremendous pride in it. You know, they, you know, they were, 
maybe because I was an outsider, but, you know, they, they talked about it and, you know, we would go mushrooming, you know, Finns are big mushroomers, and berry picking. And they mm. just, there was a real joy in what they ate. And I thought, well, actually, isn't it funny, you know, that I, I grew up around this kind of, you know, different, but this kind of food. But nobody ever, you know, like Mrs. Kirkham, when we first went to visit Mrs. Kirkham, Jerry Cooper and I, you know, she she sort of said, you know, why do you want to see me? That's interesting, actually. Do you know what? I've never thought of that. So I was I was brought up in the early sixties um, in the in in a city, London, as you say, sort of very working class and stuff. Um, actually, I don't think I don't think food had joy. Now you mention it, I had good like you. My mum would cook from scratch. You know, when you got home and all that sort of stuff, and 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 there wasn't exotic food. There just wasn't. Um, but I don't think food was a joy considered a joy. Whereas now I, I quite often hear people and go, oh, I've had the most marvelous meal and it was amazing it was like this it was like that and, and london's a great food scene and and around the rest of the, of, of the uk of course um but actually going somewhere in those days where people had massive pride and joy and probably trying to show off for what they were doing for you yeah i think they probably did i mean my mother had sort of private you know with us yeah she would she would come in from alec lord's van you know on thursday nights and she would say He's got new, you know, the new potatoes oh, are right. in, and she she would, you know, but it, but it was very, you know, my father, you know, like no, 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 nobody else in the family. I mean, she mm. was, even though my grandma was a great cook, but she took joy in it. So therefore, she, you know, oh, although my, she transferred that to us. Although my sister, you know, could live and probably does live off bean sprouts and almonds. She has no interest in food <laughs> at all in, in Northern oh, California. So you're in Finland and you stayed there for a year. Yeah. And then um, I know that you've spent quite a lot of time in, in America, particularly New York. Why, did, why did, you, did you just not want to be in the UK? I just didn't want to be in the UK. I couldn't see what kind of life I could live here in the UK. I just, I didn't, I didn't say to myself, I'm going to live the rest of my life outside the UK, but I just didn't want to be here. It just seemed constricting and, and I just didn't You want just to be. didn't feel you could be yourself? No. And in the US, I, I mean, that was very freeing. I mean, you look at the US now and you think, you know, what a nightmare. But it wasn't a nightmare then. Well, at least it wasn't for me. And I just, I realised, you know, that I wasn't, you know, I'd, I'd come out of university thinking I was a fake, that I'd only got into university by some sort of trick and that, you know, I was actually kind of dumb and, and you know, I was, I just I didn't, I, you know, I came out sort of angry and feisty. I shouldn't use that word feisty about women, feisty men. Anyway, I came out, but still with my confidence at a pretty low level, but, you know, and then, but, you know, being in the US, you know, I was in Indiana first, and then that, it was tremendously good for me. And so you felt felt that was very f- sort of free, free in a way that you could yeah. just, you, you had just much more opportunities. You, you could just, you know, suit yourself in whatever way. And obviously you must have been talented, Sheila, even if you didn't have the confidence in, in being a writer. Because, you know, you've got, you, you've, got a, you, you've got a job on a New York food magazine, Food Monitor, and you spent many years living in America. So you must have been talented in order to get to get. Well, no, I mean, I think, you know, if I look back at my life, I think, it, you know, regrets, my regrets are that I didn't, Believe you know that I. You know, what can you regret? It's, you grew. Up, I grew up like that. You know that I. I didn't have confidence in myself. I didn't. Um, I didn't trust myself. I didn't trust my perceptions of the world. You know, and it's been a long haul to get to the point where I do. Hmm. I think that's true for a lot of women. I think. 
I think so too. I, yeah. I really do, particularly the confidence um, issue. Particularly what? The confidence issue. I think I think yeah. a lot of women get held back because of their own confidence issues and then if somebody sort of batters that from the outside that that just makes it worse so so you know yeah. I think that can be a self-perpetuating thing I would like to talk about the the, the women's sort of aspect um later but you, you're in America and and again you actively sort out a food magazine was that well, no that no was no first I mean food didn't come start? into it at all to start with I mean I went I was at the University of Indiana because you know for a very unfeminist reason my boyfriend was doing his doctorate there, he had a Fulbright, and I got into uh, the Victorian Studies programme, um, which I was mad about at the time. I was really interested in the 19th century, and and then I realised I wasn't ever, you know, I, I don't know, lack of confidence. Anyway, I wasn't going to be an academic, that wasn't for me. So, so it wasn't really until I came back to New York from being in New Zealand, you know, I went to New Zealand in the interim, and I came back to the US that I got involved. You know, the, it, God, it's a long story. It's all right. That's what we're here for. I've lived too long. That's what we're here for. <laughs> I'm fascinated by the fact that, the, the, you know, you have a joy of food. But food then was, was, was something that you wouldn't necessarily go into. It was quite unusual, I think. Well, it was funny. It was funny, you know, because I look back and when I lived in Indiana, um, you know, I'd learned to cook really quite seriously at Leicester. I'd had a group of friends and we we all read, we all bought Elizabeth David and we all learned to cook with her. You know, I, I knew how to cook simple things, but anyway, I learned to cook properly. And um, and so in, in Indiana, you know, I had this file where I kept three by five cards on what I'd cooked for people. And that went on for a long time where I cooked, loved food, you know, really sought out good things to, to cook with. But I never thought of it as something I could work in because I couldn't think what, what you would what, do. What would I do? Yeah, yeah, so, so you know, I was doing all kinds of editing, writing jobs, but and food was. So, how did you get to Food Monitor? Was it just something that was that was advertised in New York? Oh no, not at all. It wasn't like that. It was, it was. <clears throat> I'd had a baby, I, my son Tom, in New York, and. Um, he was, I was weaning him. It was, I don't know, he was probably eight or nine months old. And I was, of course, mashing up yeah. fish and everything into, as you do, in, as you do <laughs> into potatoes. And there was this scandal on Long Island. Uh, I think it's, even now there's a, still a big commercial potato growing area on Long Island in the middle. And they were using this pesticide, aldicarb, which had leached through uh, the soil into the aquifer. And it got into the water supply and they were having to tank um, water onto certain parts of Long Island. And I thought, you know, I hadn't really engaged with this at all, even though I'd read Rachel Carson's. I mean, how could I be so stupid? But um, I just thought, well, if it's, if it's, you know, if it's survived enough to go in the water, making people sick, which is why, why they, you know, why this all was discovered. How much is in the potatoes? And I'm, you know, I'm giving this to my baby. Mm -hmm. And so I went off to look to the library to look at um, pesticide residue levels. And I was so shocked by how bad the science was and how much involvement industry had in setting pesticide residue limits. You know, they're not, you know, they're not anything. It's not objective. It's certainly not objective. (laughs) So that I just, I just was in a rage, you know, the way that mothers do when they're, you know, Tiger mum. Well, you know, and exactly. And I thought, okay, who's writing about it? You know, where, where, 
And the truth was, right then, there wasn't a lot of people writing about it. And fortunately, a friend of a friend, you know, I barely knew this fella, but he, in Washington, I, my friends had ringed this guy and... And he said, well, why don't you volunteer, you know, if you're really so interested? You know, I'll send you some names of some organizations. And so I worked, I volunteered at this magazine called Food and... I rang them up and said, look, I'm a journalist and I'm really interested and, you know, can I help you? And so they, I started to work there a bit and then I worked at this place in the, in the Bronx in the middle of a food desert... Literally. Um, literally, then, yeah, yes. it really was. It was after the, you know, the big, the, you know, the big fires there and just all, all the riots and things. Anyway, um, my husband, who's an investigative financial journalist, was a bit put off by the idea that I was going to write about food. You know, he just you worried thought, you're going to get sued to death or something. No, he just no? thought I was turning trivial. You know, food. You know, it's like. <laughs> Jolly cake, yeah, cakes yeah, or something. Yeah. And he said, okay, you know, well, if you're going to do food, follow the money. You know, and that's pretty good advice, actually. And so I offered to to write for them a column called Food Biz, and which was I would monitor all the financial press. You know, the, I would look for the, all the stories about the global food companies. And that was great training. And, you know, and, I wrote and so this, what were you trying to do? To sort of expose I was trying them, to see, trying to say more. to people, look... Don't this stuff the- is happening. You think that the, the world of economics and finance doesn't have anything to do with the daily, your daily life. But in fact, Coca-Cola, Nestle, you know, all of, you know, these are huge companies which are... are they will this is what they are doing in the world. And I'm just, so I just... I covered... The, I, I wrote about what they were doing and which countries they were moving into. You know, Coca-Cola getting sued for what they was doing to the water supply in India or, you know, whatever... And so that... So people could make that link between... People could make the link between, you know, what was on their plates and what was happening globally, you know, because people, you know, they see things appearing in supermarkets, they see supermarkets getting more powerful, but but they don't don't understand why. But don't you think, though, that people believe that supermarkets are the gatekeepers for their safety? You know, that oh, I, they I do until just a few years ago yeah. and assumed that they would take that role on for them or, or even somebody like the big corporates, you know, they would have some sort of ethical, um, I don't know, gatekeeping role where, where they would make sure that something like that didn't happen. Whereas the honest truth is some of these corporates do, do you know, trot around the world and not necessarily doing anything on purpose. We're not saying that, but the byproduct of what they do sometimes has, has a massive effect. Well, it's, 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 I mean, you say byproduct. It's a system where they have shareholders and shareholder prices. You know, the, the, the profits are what, you know, they have to show their shareholders that mm-hmm. they are successful. And year on year. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, we're talking about a time of, you know, in the wake of Reagan-Thatcher neoliberal economics that was changing the way the idea of, of corporations having... Social. I mean, you know, we're sort of back to it now, but we're mouthing it now, whereas we used to. Mm. It used to be more part of the DNA of corporations that they had a social responsibility, pay people well, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, yeah. And so, it was in that kind of atmosphere context that context. Thank yeah, you. Exactly. Better yeah. um, that I was doing this, and it was also the time in the U.S., which is you know, it was a very interesting time which um, it was the breakup of the, of, it was the, the, I'm trying to remember which president, I guess it was, 
the 20s or 30s where um, after the after the Great Depression, you, you got uh, legislation, you know, um, controlling monopolies. Well, Reagan, you know, got rid of that. And so that would be when I, I think just, just before I worked at Food Monitor, um, if you'd, if you had looked at the meat industry in the United States, you would have seen hundreds and hundreds of small companies, very well unionized, very well paid. And that was in the process of being destroyed. You know, now we have three, four companies who really are the they dominate world meat production mm. and i think what i what i hadn't realized about you I haven't, i've met you a few times is that i didn't realize you're that passionate sheila passionate and and that crusading you're you're quite a crusader <laughs> and i think, <laughs> well, I, think I feel once, i feel once, like i feel very intensely that food matters I think, and most uh, people don't feel like that yeah and and uh, we've had some people on the show as well have said that that, that food is the lens through which they view the world because food's really important to them. Um, but I think uh, once uh, when we were talking uh, a long time ago, you were saying that when you were doing the food programme, if you didn't actually have to get in contact with the legal department of the BBC, you didn't think the programmes were very good. <laughs> well, we had a wonderful... <laughs> because, <laughs> because because you want, I think you wanted to be at that, 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 that just pushing it a little bit where you've got to check it out that you are allowed to say that um, because you you do feel passionately that, that, that people are blindly putting things in their mouth and particularly their children, and and we should we have the right to know exactly what what's. Well, we it. haven't. We have the right to know that, but we you know go back from it. People, it's one of the things that sort of irritates me about the United States. You know, the, the rise of organic food and the way it's seen just as a health issue, whereas I think it's a it's an environmental issue. It's a it's how we use the land. It's how we treat animals. It's how we treat people. You've just poured yourself some dandelion and burdock. I thought I would while you were chatting. Yeah. Um, you oh, you're well. putting, oh, is it a cordial? Yeah, or I'm going to get you some as well while you're while you're oh, chatting. Right. Mm. There's a there's still a wonderful um, stall on Blackburn Market. Morsons. That um, you know you go and you get a little got yeah. Um, Perfect. You want some while you're chatting? So yes, yeah, sorry, you were saying. Yeah. No. Uh, what was I saying? Burdock. Dandelion <laughs> burdock or or. Um, but but going to the legal department in the BBC. Yeah, I mean we had a we had research. a we had a wonderful head of department called Caroline Millington, and uh, I'd have to go on Thursdays and or usually you don't. Um, and I'd say you know we've we've got we've had a letter from you know whoever it was Unilever or um, <laughs> and uh, we've had a call and and she said good well you must be doing something right then. Um, and that was her attitude. And well, that's quite unusual, don't you think? In it is unusual. Yeah, no, it's. Quite I don't know whether they played that too strong for you. Not very good at cordials. No, it's good. It's good, isn't it? Mm. Mm. So, so, so you were in America. Then you go over to the Radio Four program, the Food program. Did you go straight? Um, well, from New York, over I did. Years. You know, so I worked. They offered me a job. I didn't go on. Fortunately, um, acting as a volunteer, I got a job as an <clears throat> as an editor there. And then we moved back to London because a number of things came together. I mean, it wasn't that I was unhappy with my job. I wasn't at all. But um, our apartment was too small and we had a toddler. And and then Peter, my husband, got, got offered a really good job here to be a bureau chief of an American magazine. So I thought... You thought, now I'm going to go back to the UK. Yeah, and even I'm confident though... enough to do it. That's really interesting, though. So you, so you didn't feel you could fit in the UK at one point. Mm. And then as things have happened to you, you, you felt you you grew into the fact that you could now live in the UK and stand yeah. up for yourself. Well, I mean, one of way. the things we missed out is that 
for a while I worked in publishing in Boston and I was one of six women uh, who won a really important sex discrimination case um, in the publishing industry. And that was, you know, that that was good for us. So it that was, was good for the publishing industry and it was good for me. It was good so for So that was Little Brown and Co. Publishing. That was Little so Brown, right. it was part of Time Life. And and you bought a class action against the company for sex discrimination we and did. you won. And that was actually gender pay gap. It was. The I mean, gender pay way, gap. I mean, it's way almost before now. Really. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, then it was. You know, nothing could have been clearer. I mean, they honestly, they had no defence at all. Actually, if I look back on it, but you it's know, a very they, brave they, thing to do. Uh, when was that? That was 80s. early seventies. No, 70s, no, it was early seventies. Wow. Um, because you know, Little Brown was a very old-fashioned. Even though it was part of Time Life, it was a very old-fashioned company, and they only they seemed to well only, but mostly recruited men from the Ivy League and women from uh, the Seven Sisters, you know, there's women's colleges. Apart from me, I was too, you know, I don't know, because I was British, I guess. And um, they were paying the men two and a half times what they were paying the women. For exactly the same job? No, 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 because they, oh. they divided them immediately. They oh, okay. put the men from into trade publishing, working with authors, and the women went into copy editing. There were no... There were no women in, in trade publishing, and there were no. There was well, actually, there was, eventually there was one British man um, who became actually a really good drinks writer um, in copy editing, and and that was the divide. So that was what it was about. It was, it was it was salary, but it was also access restricting to, you from, yeah, from, from from because you couldn't. I mean, once you were a copy editor, you you, you start. That was it. I mean, you weren't going to start, you know, working with the great novelists or anything. You know, I mean, they had, a, you know, a lot of good writers. So you come over to the food programme, writing, well, uh, not presenting in the first instance, were you? Mm. you, you were, uh, I was a reporter. At the time. Yes. Um, um, so you've got your favourite topic, almost, food. Yeah. Something that, that socially is important to you, domestically is important to you. Um, you've got this experience from, from all around the world, it sounds like it, not just America. Um, and you've obviously won um, a sex discrimination uh, um you know, case along with with, with um, some other very brave ladies, you must have arrived there back into the UK. Quite a formidable force, I would suggest. I know you're gonna, I know you're gonna dispute that, but you must be. I don't know. It's also. Do you think people are scared though. of you? <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, Derek liked me. Derek. Derek, Derek was Cooper. really Derek. Sorry, Derek yes. Cooper, who was the presenter of the food program, the guy, the man who set up the food program in '79. Um, he he was really, you know, he was an old-fashioned socialist. You know, he loved to eat and drink, and you know, mm. and you know, he lived in a grand house in Richmond. But he came from a working-class background, and he really liked the fact that I was interested in the economics of... Because he wasn't, you know, he just would... So your angle was different So my angle his, was different from his, and, yeah. they, and they gelled really well my, as a well, reporter. But, you know, I, within a year I became a producer, and then this, you know, and then I ran this little team. And um, so he was, you know, he, he built, helped build my confidence, and I, he wasn't threatened by my being... No, because forceful. Because he, he's good at what he does. So he yeah. doesn't have to feel threatened, I'm, I would no. suggest. Most beautiful voice. 
Gary Cooper. Yeah, he did. A beautiful, beautiful voice. voice. Yes. Um, so you've been. He there. said, uh, you know, sometimes I'd give him a script, you know, notes for his script, and I, you know, I'd say, oh, I'm a bit worried about this, Derek, and he'd say, you wait till I get the golden tones on this lump. It'll be all right. <laughs> Does he just talk his way around it, really, basically? <laughs> smooth his way around it. Now, you've been there for 20 years. Longer than 20 years, yeah. You don't feel the, 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 the need to move. I mean, I would suggest that food is more interesting than ever to, 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 to talk about. Yeah, but where where else do you get, to as a journalist, to talk, um, to investigate, to celebrate the wide range of things that we do on the food programme? You know, I mean... Yesterday, today, tomorrow, I'm working on uh, with Dan Saladino, my colleague, um, on how green is your red meat. Part two of a of, of, of second part of this pro- of um, the subject, and I've just done a long interview with Michelle Rue at Gavroche, and also tomorrow I'm. Um, I shouldn't be saying that, should I? No, she can. That's absolutely <laughs> fine. Give it, tomorrow, give it tomorrow, so fine. tomorrow, I'm uh, I'm finishing a program about ballet dancers and diet. You know, and, uh, so, and, then, and then you had the two part program about Jamie Oliver. You, you know, you've got yeah. this huge range, isn't there? Um, yes, you can. So, you know, if you can convince the other members of the team, you know, we we meet once a week and either you know virtually on um, Skype or really. And if you can convince them that, you know, this is a good idea, then then we make it. And we try and do this mix of journalism, celebration. But even when you're even when you're celebrating, you want to you want to do it smartly. You want to do it with knowledge. You don't want I mean I'm utterly I'm irritated by food as pure entertainment. I mean it just gets on my nerves. I find it embarrassing. Uh, just explain that to me in terms of sort of MasterChef or, or, or something like that where, where, where it's just, uh, you know, the centre of something. I mean, it seems to me that, and again, I haven't really realised this before with you, is that, that you are very much an investigative journalist. I think that's how you, is that how you well, do I, yourself? Yes, I suppose. I mean, I'm not saying you're, that's you're trying bent. to expose something, but you're trying to understand it, get underneath it. I want to understand it, yeah. I want to, I'm... Tell me, what, I, I, so what's your programmes that really irritate you? Do you mind saying? Do I mind saying? Or, or, or describe the genre, um, the genre that, that, that irritates you? Well, I, I mean, I, I don't watch, you know, a lot now because I save myself from irritation. Um, <laughs> but, um, I mean, I, I really liked Great British Bake Off for a different, you know, especially with the Mary Berry version, um, because I liked how that brought out people's characters you know I, mm. you know I had to sort of force myself to watch it because I also learned things yeah you, I, I learned a lot yeah. and I was astounded by the skill mm. um, involved and but I love the way that that reveals who people are you know and I mean that's completely different from anything mm. well it's not completely different from our you know life through food kind of programs but um I just let me think. I'm Is it just the travelling chefs who go around who are famous? Yeah, so. all the you know, occasionally. I mean, you know, I thought that the Ken Hom in China with, I can't remember her name. I'm ashamed to say, um, mm. that wonderful young Chinese chef. I mean, I thought that was genius. I loved that. Um, I think Food Unwrapped is could be so much better. Um, These people need to get Sheila on as an advisor. Sorry. These people need to get you on as an advisor, I would suggest. <laughs> no, they, you know, they know what they're doing on television. Yeah. You know, television is to a great degree about, 
about, you know, Being entertainment. Yeah. And that, that irritates me, really. Yeah. I love the fact you're irritated by a lot of things. Marvellous. <laughs> um, so uh, gender equality, obviously this little brown and co thing, um, uh, you know, was something that was quite important and in, in a way um, quite ground breaking because it's one of the first successful cases brought under the 60s sex discrimination legislation. Do you feel still feel very strongly about women's rights? I do, but I'm I'm slightly worried that I've got a bit comfortable in you know in my, you know, um, because I mean there's been as you as everybody knows a lot of issues at the BBC. I mean Carrie Grace, it's it's. I'm too comfortable about it. I, you know, I, at the BBC, you know, we're all in our little silos. And the the other issue is that we all know that what tight budgets we work on. Yes, of course. So Because it's public money and you have it's to public money. be accountable. And so for it. then, you know, there's a I think, you know, the perception of the BBC, you know, especially as promulgated by the Murdoch and Barclay brothers and so on newspapers is that, you know, it's this rife with you know, self-serving corruption, and you know it's a terrible place. Well, it isn't. You know, there are you know there are plenty of bad things going on at the BBC, but I'm sure you know as there is any big organisation. But what I see is that there is this huge. What I see is a huge number of producers of all ages. You know, 22 to 60, who just have fantastically dedicated sense of public service, which makes them very, generally, very unwilling to ask for raises. You know, you don't... Because you have this sense of... Because it's not your nature to do. Yeah. yeah, and it's... You know, the same woman, Caroline Millington, who used to say when we got into legal issues, she would say, you know, you're doing something right. She would be very annoyed if you saw your expenses. You know, you'd spend what she thought was far too much money on something, and she'd say, do you realise that that is half a licence fee. Hmm. And there was this constant reminder that we existed on public money. Yeah. And that's still there. Yes, of course. Yeah. And, and But what do you think about... Um, so, so I think you and me perhaps are brought up in the same way where you never really got a voice at all as a female and, and certainly for some of the jobs that I've had, um, I didn't get the opportunities that I might have done and all sorts of stuff. Um, uh, do you think it's much easier now being female? Maybe in your twenties or thirties. I think it is. I think it is. I think it is easier. Yes. Um, I, I have to say, I'm disappointed that it hasn't hasn't got better quicker. Has it yeah. gone further? But I do think it is a little yeah. easier. Well, I mean, we, we're talking about an established way of seeing women and mm. viewing their capabilities and you know traditions that takes a long time to overthrow which as i used to remind myself when mm. in the 70s and 80s and 90s when young and certainly in the 90s when young women seemed to feel that feminism was you know somehow old hat and they had it all you know i thought well you'll grow up you'll figure it out no you don't yeah. um yeah it's still tough for a lot of women of course you can't believe that we've been going for like nearly 40 minutes already. No, we have yes, we have. Okay, so I'm going to ask you some other stuff. Um, food and health. Now, um, I, I, I know that you were diagnosed with um, bone marrow cancer um, and you were told there was little else that you could do probably than other than to have chemo. How did you deal with that in terms of food? And, and, and so you were saying earlier about your son, you suddenly read about all these things and think, oh, actually, I'm going to investigate this myself I'm going to make my mother how did you approach that and, and what have you done well with rage to start with you know the anger anger yes. and but I just 
I can't, um, I can't even remember who. I, I got hold of this book, which I couldn't, I didn't have, I, I just didn't have the strength to read, but my husband read it, um, by um, a scientist, uh, Sir Van Schreiber, and called, um, oh God, what is it called? Anyway, never mind, it's by Sir Van Schreiber. And it really... Um, sort of puts together this, the science and it's, you know, it's not just humans, the science on humans, yep. but what various things besides chemo affect and are good, um, are anti-cancer. It's called anti-cancer actually. And, um, and so I, I, Peter read it and then he, you know, sort of, you know, gave me the information and, and, you know, it's animal studies, laboratory studies. And, and, and you know, it, we're in that position in this society where you, you really do have to think for yourself because, you know, the, what it's I almost, now know... There's almost too much information now. It's too much information, yeah. but you, you know, the, the, the temptation when you're really ill is to, um, is to you know, be a patient, you know, follow your doctor's instructions, and that, which is not a good plan. I mean, my only advice to anybody with cancer is don't be a patient, you know. So uh, as a mindset. Think for yourself. As a mindset. Mindset. So So what came out of that that book was um, that I should have a diet much higher in, uh, you know, the cabbage family, the whole cruciform family. I should eat a lot of mushrooms. Um, I should, you know, the onion family was important. Wow. And so that, you know, I just upped that. I found somebody who um, makes cold-pressed broccoli juice, you know, so I, I drink that. But most importantly, I found this research about uh, turmeric and, uh, well, actually, curcumin, which is made from turmeric. And I take a very high dose of that um, every day. And fortunately, I have this open-minded oncologist who, at BART, um, Jamie Cavanaugh, and he was interested in the research and he already had another patient who'd read the same research, who'd come to the end of her chemo, and you know it wasn't working, and had gone on this, and he he, he was monitoring her too, so it concentrated my mind, you know. But I, I mean, I didn't give up drinking wine or having. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. No, I mean I didn't. Thank goodness for that. Nor nor meat, nor uh, cheese, nor let's have another bit of Mrs. Kirkham's. But you know, it just made it it taught me something about about medical systems. And about how you really, you know, have to think for yourself. And I think there's a lot of. I'm sorry, I'm talking my mouth full. I've got Mrs. Right. Kirkham's. I'm going to talk with my mouth full now. Lovely. We've come. Must mm. have come to the end. Mm. Nobody was going to stick with it this long. But um, uh, but nowadays, I think there's a lot more. I think people are beginning to understand the huge link between health and what you're eating. Yeah, and we've been making programs about it. I mean, yeah. At last. You know. At last, you know that there are these young students who are really pressuring medical schools to change the curriculum. Yeah, as they should, because some, I mean, lots of doctors don't know anything about nutrition or, and now, and now no. it's beginning to, people are beginning to understand that there's, there's a huge link. And that's not necessarily about weight or anything like that. It's just about health. Really realizing, yeah, about health and yeah. what, what you're doing. Do you think well, I mean, there are people like, you know, Rangon Chatterjee and Rupi Ojala. I mean, there's another podcast, hmm. you know, The Doctor's Kitchen. Hmm. I mean, that's, young people are really interested in that. Yeah. The other, the, the downside that we, we did discuss this in one of our podcasts a few weeks ago. <clears throat> Is that it feels like a bit like? Do you remember in the Victorian times where people used to be, you know, or before then, people would be lining the street and selling all these quack 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> medicines oh, yeah, about, that would cause, you know, this is going to cure this and that. Oh, we, absolutely. We do, you do have to be a bit careful because there are definitely a lot of people You have to be really intelligent. Oh, of course you do. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, why would you abandon your intelligence? Mm while looking at something that is going to help your health. You know, you can't go on the, you know, and just just absorb all this stuff. No. You have to think. You have to think Thinking's a real pain. So, uh, gender equality champion, food and health, I think it's very interesting. Uh, the future. Are you going to be sticking with the food programme? <laughs> Are you going to be writing <laughs> There's still? There's Writing more? Well, we just got the contract. You know, we had to bid for our... The right to go on making a few weeks ago. I thought it was an institution not allowed to replace the food program. Well, I mean, it was you know they, it was up for bid. I mean, they're, really? they're selling. I mean, a lot of Radio Four is going to be up for bid, and we were up for bid anyway. We got it. So Thank goodness, it's um, part of my life. I, I'm, I'm seriously not joking. <laughs> well, about that. It's part of my life. The food program. Um, so we're going on with that, but yeah, you know, I think about what next. But you've still got the passion to, to do well, the programme. Yeah, obviously, so Dan, I do, Dan obviously I mean, does a lot of the presenting now. and then you've got Dan's all doing it and we have two new presenters who are doing... We have a specialist drinks presenter, Jager Wise, mm. you know, who founded Wild Card Brewery, who's mm-hmm. brilliant. And Leila Kazim, who's a Instagrammer, world traveller, street food, you know. Uh, she's doing some too. Um, I don't and, know, you know, I feel like time to move on, actually. Time to move you? on. I wonder what you're going to do next. It frightens me a little bit. Because it feels to me like whatever you put your mind to, you're going to take it seriously and, and rattle a few cages. And, you know, why not? Not, not, well, I mean, not, at in, a my, at my not age, in a deliberate way. But... You know, well, at my age, you think if you're not going to be brave now, when are you going to be brave? I mean, there's not a lot of time <laughs> left, is there? <laughs> well, I hope there is. <laughs> I hope there is. Um, and then just, just one final thing. Any food trends that you're expecting to see over the next oh, few years? Come I hope on. food... I mean, one of the things that really depresses me is this mass abandonment in Britain of red meat. You know, that this, these, all these documentaries and studies which take the, the US model as the model, when in fact in Britain we have fantastically good models which could lead to much more sustainable meat mm. production. So I'd like to see a trend to eating really good red meat that would you know, preserve our countryside, not add to global warming and be good for us. I mean, but, I've, I've uh, got you know, a couple pros- of um, really nice steaks that I bought the other week. Now, I don't eat a lot of red meat at all, but I'm going to eat those on Friday night. I've got a really nice bottle of red wine. I've got some great local vegetables and I'm really, really looking forward to it. And for me, that's how you should eat meat. It's a massive treat and make sure you can get, you know, the the, the, the most sustainable that you can find and really honour it, I would say, I, and, and, and enjoy it. But I don't eat it a lot, but I don't, I don't want to I not mean, eat, I don't it. eat it. I don't eat it a lot. And I was really interested because I, I almost didn't notice it at the time. A few weekends ago, I was in Milan, first time ever, for an award. You know, I didn't win it, but, you know, I had a lot of fun. And uh, I ate all these, you know, wonderful meals, celebratory meals. And I looked back at it and realised that I'd probably eaten maybe three ounces of meat the whole three days because it was used as a flavouring. Yeah, absolutely. Not... Yeah, as a thing, is, and it's not as the centrepiece. Hey. Yeah, well, I think we're going to see much more of that. Well, um, Sheila, I, I know you get embarrassed by all this, but you're you a really great inspiration to me um, over the years. I love the food programme, and I know lots and lots of people do, so don't you dare let it go to anybody else. I should be <laughs> really, really upset. Well, I'll um, tell, tell the food programme team to listen. Yeah, and yes. even, if you, even if you sort of, you know, you decide you're not going to do it, just do the odd bit of presenting, because it's the voice. You've got, a, you've got a great voice, sort of interesting mix of Lancashire and... 
Irish. Slightly American, American. slightly yeah. Irish voice. It's quite difficult to pin down. So um, so thank you so much for joining us. It was a great pleasure. Shall thank we, um, shall we crack into some um, Kirkhams? In, in uh, oh, yes, yeah, some so Kirkhams. Let's have it with a bit off. of Parkin, shall we? A little bit of Parkin as well. So you can, you, can un, you, can unf- you can unfold that. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I'm just going to finish off the programme while you're doing that. Is that OK? Right, is it? Excellent. The yeah, sound effects are right. Yeah, no, no, do carry on. So uh, you've been listening to the Food Talk Show and as you know, we're syndicated to radio stations across the UK and further afield, as well as being available on Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, iTunes and the podcast app on your phone. If you want to recommend any future guests, somebody doing something groundbreaking in the food sector, well, they're obviously not going to be as impressive as Sheila, but, you know, we can try. Get in touch with us via Twitter on at Food Talk Show. Or if you want to listen to any of our hundreds of podcasts, go to foodtalk.co.uk or the Speciality Food Magazine website where we're on the homepage. I hope that you and your loved ones um, have a very good Christmas and let's hope, I would say, the new year is somewhat better. 2020 is somewhat <laughs> better one, than yeah. well, Merry 2099. Christmas, yeah. yeah, Merry Christmas, everybody. Have a good week.